Let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you. We thank you just for this day that you have made, Lord. And um, may we rejoice and be glad in it. We are so thankful for our church, which, of course, by which we mean the people, Lord, that make up this local church of Calvary Bible. We thank you, Lord, for any visitors we have today. We thank you for the ability to live stream and have people tune in even uh, in, in, in that sense. Lord, we thank you for our buildings. We thank you for the property that you have blessed us to have. We thank you, Lord, for things like instruments and pulpits and pews. And Lord, we thank you even for our drum cage and, and just uh, the way that you have so faithfully, so consistently provided for the needs of this ministry. And Lord, we look forward to all the ways that you will continue to provide. And it would be our, our hope, our prayer, Lord, that it's, that it's all for the purpose of bringing the gospel to this world, and specifically, Lord, uh, our local communities, and then, of course, through our missionaries, even beyond. Lord, we pray now for this time that we will spend in your word, that it would be profitable for us, that it would be of great blessing to you, and Lord, we just ask that you would help us to hear it well, to understand it, And certainly, Lord, to apply it. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to think for a moment just about some kind of, uh, maybe an act of kindness or an act of love that someone has shown you at some time in your life and something that that maybe made somewhat of an impact, you know, or, or even a significant impact on you. I have a favorite book, and it's a little one, and it's called Agape Leadership. And, and in it, the authors, they tell great um, stories uh, about 19th century English pastor, teacher, and evangelist named R.C. Chapman. Uh, R.C. Chapman was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said of R.C. Chapman that he is the saintliest man I've ever known. And so coming from somebody like Charles Spurgeon, we, that, that has tremendous weight. Uh, the book is great because he was just a humble man, a man who loved God, a man who loved other people, both the saved and the unsaved. And in this short but sweet book, the authors tell this story. Chapman and his friend, William Hake, were once visiting in South Devon and had just enough money for two railway fares back to Barnstaple. During their visit, they needed to separate, so Hake gave Chapman money for his return fare. They met later, and Hake, knowing Chapman's habit of giving money away, asked Chapman if he still had his fare. Our father knows all about it, was Chapman's reply. Now, suspecting that the money was gone, Hake repeated his question as they approached the railway station. Chapman finally confessed that he had given the money to an elderly woman who was not feeling well, who he believed needed it more than he did. Well, what, what are you going to do now? Hake asked. With some agitation, Chapman simply replied, Our father knows all about it. And as the train pulled up to the platform, a friend ran up, apologizing for being late, and gave each of them more than enough money for the fare. But that was R.C. Chapman, and there's story after story of him just giving things away, giving things away. In fact, you've heard those great stories of George Mueller and just trusting the Lord in prayer for the orphanage. On one occasion, it was R.C. Chapman who brought money that day for Mueller and for the orphans. Um, but just a, just a tremendous man of God and showing loving kindness to others, both inside and outside the church, was just who R.C. Chapman was. It just seemed to be built inside of him, a part of his nature to do so, albeit, and he would say this, I believe, his new nature that he had in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
a nature that, that passed along to him the very attributes of God, in this case, kindness and love. And so for today, friends, we will examine further God's loving kindness and specifically in the realm of salvation. The, um, the title of this little series that, that we will um, be on is Salvation in Four Parts, The Kindness and Love of God. We'll stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. This is in uh, Titus chapter 3, if you're not already there. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, this will be verses 4 to 7 that we will be covering over the next few weeks. Paul writes to Titus on the Isle of Crete. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, so far in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we have learned that we are to be, as Christians, um, we, we learned what we are to be as Christians by way of some of those attributes of God, of course, taking up residence in us, as we see in Scripture. And part of the point of this is not just so that we're different among our brothers and sisters in the Lord, those inside the church, but as we've been talking about it, so that we are different outside the church, so that the people um, in the unbelieving world see something different than what they are used to seeing. I remember years ago when Cirque du Soleil first showed up to Los Angeles, at least I think it was when they first showed up to Los Angeles, I don't know how many years ago it was, But it was when they would take a parking lot over in Santa Monica and they'd set up big top type tent. They had, uh, you know, the the show in tents. And um, I don't know, somebody maybe invited us to go or we decided to go and and got to go to this this circus. And of course, I just thought it was a French circus, but I thought it was the equivalent of our circuses. And we'd see, you know, animals and acrobats and clowns and that sort of thing but when we got there and the show started oh it was so much more it was so mind-boggling it was different and and you walked away from there just kind of blown away um, by what they did and then of course it kept going and then it's spreading and then it's in Las Vegas and you can go see multiple shows and they've had many different productions Uh, throughout the years, but they're always doing something different and something new that would just wow their audiences and amaze their audiences. And I think that is the way we should be as Christians. We should be different. We shouldn't be what everybody just expects, say, us to be. The world is expecting, frankly, the same old bah humbug out there. People who look just like them and we need to show them something more. We need to show them something different. We need to show people something extra ordinary. Well, getting back to our text, this was then followed by verse 3, which reminded us what we all once were as sinners, dead in our trespasses and our iniquities. And this is how every person who is not yet a child of God thinks and acts. Um, This should help us in several ways. We learned last week uh, that we remember what we once were and how we we never want to return, or the week before. Uh, We avoid these traits as a Christian so we don't ruin our testimony. And it reminds us that we can't expect believers to act, uh, can't expect unbelievers to act like believers. We can't let ourselves be, be so offended by the sins of the world um, that we you know, get grossed out or upset or even angry to the point where we can't get off our high moral soapbox and reach these people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is what Paul next reminds Titus of in our text. And again, over the next uh, few weeks, we'll be working through this text, Salvation in Four Parts, beginning today with the kindness and love of God. This will be followed by the mercy of God, then the Holy Spirit of God, and finally the grace of God. 
Again, all in the context of Christ Jesus saving us so that you all can be the best witness of the gospel both inside the church but also outside. So let us begin with the kindness and love of God. We see this beginning with verse 4, back in verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Now, believe it or not, there is so much for us to unpack in this short verse and and a quarter. Uh, In order to do this, we're going to break it down into four headlines. And the first is this, God as kindness. God as kindness. The context here is that God's kindness will lead to something. It will lead, in fact, to salvation. But in our verse, God is not referred merely um, as, as Theos, God, but he has actually given this title, God, our Savior. Savior is soter, which simply means to save. It can be a deliverer. Uh, preserver, one who saves someone from danger or destruction and brings them into a state of prosperity or happiness. And in our verse, God's kindness is directly related or tied to being our Savior. And notice that, that too, we're not yet talking about His Son, Jesus, in His role as Savior. That will come about a little bit later when we get to verse 6. But rather, we are talking about God the Father as Savior. So let's just examine this a little bit more. Can you think of any times, any other times in the Scriptures where God the Father acts as a Savior? And you're like, uh, hopefully, yeah, Pastor, there's like a million gazillion of them, you know? Well, yes, that's right. And, and if we were to just kind of do a, just a sampling here, working our way backwards through biblical history from this point, of course, there's God bringing the Jews um, through that, uh, albeit silently, uh, through the 400 intertestamental years, which included the rule of the Persians over the Jews, followed by uh, the Greek rule and Alexander the Great over the Jews. Then they did have a period of independence under the Maccabean, Hasmonean, Uh, dynasty then you had the period of roman rule over the jews but again god delivering god saving even acting as sustainer through that time working backwards from there you had the babylonian captivity of some 70 years that god of course saved them through Uh, during that time you had david uh, being saved from the lion's den you had shadrach meshach and abednego being saved Uh, from the fiery furnace. Even going back a little further, you had the split kingdom of Israel and Judah. You had good kings, you had bad kings, and God acting as Savior through it all. Um, There was the family line of Judah that God saved people through a kinsman redeemer that we read about in the book of Ruth. Of course, backing up more, there's Israel taking over the promised land and God acting as Savior through that time. Oh, we go back a little further and we have the Egyptian Pharaoh and the Red Sea and wandering in the desert for those 40 years and God saving the people through it all. The parting of the Red Sea, the manna, quail, and water. There was the famine that led to all of this um, with uh, Joseph then and his ascension to being Pharaoh's number two that God saved his people through. There was Lot being saved from Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah and his family, and consequently the whole human race being saved through a worldwide flood. And going back to the beginning, God driving Adam and Eve out of the garden, posting an angel with a flaming sword to keep them out. You say, why was that an act of salvation? Because as God said in Genesis 3, verse 22, since they had eaten of the forbidden fruit, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand, take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. That would not be a good thing, friends. The consequence being that man would live forever in a sin-cursed, spiritually dead human state, unable to receive salvation because he would never die. And right now, as long as we live in our sin-cursed mortal state, we can never be fully redeemed 
and live with Christ in his paradise. Our body of death must die so that we too can be resurrected to new life in Christ. But there's even one before this. There is a a saving effort of our God actually before Adam and Eve. And we read about it in places like Romans 8, 29. For those he, meaning God the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And you have to think, well, yeah, and when did that take place? Well, then we could go to Ephesians chapter 1 and read verses 4 and 5 where it says, Just as he, that's God the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. When did he do that? Before the foundation of the world. We even get that in Titus. Back in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, when Paul says, For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Right? Going back before the foundation of the world. Verse 3, But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. That's it. (laughs) I felt like it went on. That's it. That's where we're stopping. So, returning to our text. What does this tell us about God our Savior? It tells us that he extends this tremendous kindness to his creation. And of course, being kind, again, is a part of God's nature. It is, it is who he is. It's one of his attributes. And, and we see there this word krestotes, and it literally means useful or profitable. We see it translated as good in Romans 3.12. When Paul says, all have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, Christotes, there is not even one. Now, of course, God is good. He is good all the time. All that God does is good all the time. And elsewhere... This word is often associated with salvation. In Romans 2 and verse 4, Paul shares of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience that is demonstrated towards unbelievers as to why they are given any ability to come to faith rather than just be consumed by God's fire. In fact, Paul says it's the very kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Ephesians 2 and verse 7 speaks of your salvation as in being raised up with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, quote, so that in the ages to come, he, meaning God the Father, might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2, verses 2 to 3, Peter says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted, what? The kindness of the Lord. Meaning, if the Lord has indeed saved you, then you get to taste his kindness. There's a story about a, a residence in, in, in Liverpool back in the day called the Sailor's Home. And, and one night this home was engulfed in flames and there was a, a great cry from the people of fire, fire. Uh, the, and when the people assembled, they saw in the upper stories of this home some men who were trapped up there crying for help The fire escape did not nearly reach where the men were, so a long ladder was brought, and it was put against the burning building, but alas, it was too short. 
There was a British sailor in the crowd who soon rushed up the ladder, balanced himself on the uppermost rung with his feet, seized the windowsill in his hands and shouted, quick man, just scramble over my body and get to safety. And one by one, the men came down until they were all saved. And then finally, the sailor came down. All of this, of course, at great peril to himself. His face was burnt, his hair was singed, his fingers were blistered. But out of his kindness, he saved them all. He saved them. And of course, God, friends, is kind towards us. And he is loving towards us, even when we don't deserve it. Partly because, yes, it's in his nature to do so, and partly because of this next headline that we have, which is just that, that God is love, or God as loving. God is loving. Back also again in verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared... Now, here's what's interesting about this word for love. We might suspect that it would be what? Agape. It's not. It's not. This is one of those kind of unusual places where rather it is philanthropia. Philanthropia from philos, meaning friend, and anthropos, meaning human. So we have human friendship. It's also where we get the word philanthropy, right? From which uh, we understand it's goodwill towards others. It's an active effort to promote human welfare. And here it's used of God promoting our welfare. One of the questions, I I don't know if you've ever had this, I have, um, that you may have thought of before about God and his love for people is this. Does God love all people? Does he love all people everywhere as in the whole human race? Or does God only love those that he saves? In other words, the elect. Those that have been predestined before the foundation of the world for salvation. And I think this is an interesting question to start to try and answer. Because on the one side, we have uh, David back in the Psalms. Psalm 5 verse 5 saying that the Lord hates all who do iniquity. And in Psalm 11 and verse 5, the Lord hates all who love violence. And in Psalm 45 and verse 7, God hates those who commit wickedness. And in Ecclesiastes 3.8, Solomon says there's a time to love, there's a time to hate, right? In Jeremiah 12.8, 44.8, Hosea 9.15, Amos 6.8, God says that he hates and loathes his own people when they act wickedly, <clears throat> And yet we know from other places in Scripture that this is not to be understood in any sort of a permanent way. In Zechariah 8 and verse 17, God hates those who lie and devise evil in their hearts against others. And by the way, there's a lot of other words that God uh, used of God's negative uh, feelings towards people that are not just translated hate. I just tried to pick the one that was you know, seemingly the opposite of, uh, most obviously the opposite of love. But this next one is probably one of the hardest for us to understand. So I'm going to have you go ahead and turn there. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And verse 13. In Romans 9, 13, Paul is, of course, dealing with Israel... He quotes in 9.13 Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 to 3 where he says in Romans 9.13 Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And the point here with God speaking through Malachi some 1500 years after Jacob and Esau is not so much an emotional hatred because Esau was was such a worse sinner than Jacob. I mean, come on, right? I mean, Jacob, you know, was a covetous, lying deceiver. Rather, God was making it clear that his covenant blessings for Israel would go through Jacob's line 
not Esau's. And again, not because God was emotionally more attached to one than the other or because one was better than the other. It was just simply God's sovereign choice in choosing Jacob and thus Israel for his blessing, leaving Esau and Edom for judgment. You say, well, ah, that doesn't sound very fair. Friends, as we've said many times from this pulpit, we don't want what's fair, none of us, right? We have to remember that all people everywhere, all people, Jacob's included, deserve God's judgment. And the fact that he chooses to save any of us is an absolute miracle, miracle. And because of the kindness and love of God. So I want you to just keep your bookmark there. So we're going to come back and read just a little bit more of that in, uh, in a few minutes, okay? So just keep your bookmark there in Romans 9. But this all being said, there are many other passages that speak of God's love for his creation, including people in a general sense. John 3 and verse 16, we know it well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or we have Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I hope you're noticing something here. This is not seemingly God. Um, loving us or, or being kind towards us because we have uh, made ourselves such loving, you know, great people for him to do these things for. But rather, this is even before, while we were yet sinners, in rebellion against God, showing our wickedness towards him was when Christ died for us. Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 5, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, meaning being pretty hateful to God, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Of course, even going back to that John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Now, I, don't, I, I believe that's the world, that's, that's the whole, that is not uh, God loving just the elect. Or in, in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that what? He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So even while we were unloving towards him, yet he still loved us. And when we consider these and then other passages, passages like 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, where we are exhorted to pray on behalf of all men, right, unbelievers alike, because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This sure sounds like a God who loves humans made in his image, because they are his creation. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is God's desire. Ezekiel 18 and verse 23, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? The implied answer is, I have no pleasure that any would die in their sin and wickedness. And then in verse 32 of Ezekiel 18, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. You say, well, if God loves everyone, then why doesn't he just save everyone? Because there's also the issue of God's justice and the punishment that unrepentant sinners deserve. You see, there's this gift of choice that he has given us to accept or reject he and his son. And lastly, there is the glory that will ultimately come to God the Father for him doing things this way, his way, even though it might not make much sense to us. Frankly, this is where the secret things of the Lord come into play, which then takes us back to Romans 9. So if you have that, you can open it back up. And in Romans 9, just picking up in verse 14, 
what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he is mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So in summary with this, friends, I I do believe that the scriptures teach that God has a love for each and every human being as a part of his creation, those he has created in his image because i believe that's what scripture teaches us we don't deserve this love by any stretch of the imagination we didn't do anything to earn this love it's simply due to the fact that we have a very gracious merciful loving kind god for you who have children how many times has your child or children rebelled against you acted wickedly towards you or just flat out disobeyed you and of course you still love them but then maybe you even went and you did something kind for them while they were acting so wickedly to you i remember one time as a for instance my sister and i we were young and i don't know we were just pills we were just horrible that day. We were just wicked towards my mom and dad and just, you know, acting in just, you know, sinful ways against them. And we all got home after the day and everybody took a nap and stuff. And we wake up and my parents say, um, get dressed, We're, put on your shoes, get in the car. Where are we going? We're going to the circus. And they just took us to the circus. I think my jaw must have been on the ground. Because at that point, we knew. We knew how horrible we had acted and treated them. And they just turned around and just did something nice, kind, loving towards us. And we had no, there was no reason why it wasn't anyone's birthday or anything like that. And we went to the circus and had a blast and just had a great time. And at the same time, God also hates those who do iniquity. And yes, he has chosen to let some suffer the consequences of his wrath due to their choice of rejecting he and his son. But again, it's all God's prerogative to do things the way that he does. Now, get back to our text here. Because of God's love for mankind... He created a way for man to be forgiven of his sin, reconciled back to God so man could have fellowship with God in his eternal kingdom and worship him forever. This takes us to our third headline, God appearing. God appearing. Back in verse 4, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Now, we were already introduced to this this idea of having appeared back in Titus 2, verse 11, where Paul declared, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And like the verb appeared back in 2, verse 11, the verb here is the same tense of the verb. It's called an aorist tense. And I tell you that because it reminds us or it tells us that there was an action that took place at a very certain and specific point in time. The question is, what was the action? What was the action that took place at that specific and certain point in time? Well, whatever the action was, according to both verses, it brought salvation. 3-4 tells us the salvation is for us. Paul referring to those who are saved, those who are true believers. And back in 2 verse 11, the action brought salvation to all men. And back then we also learned, this is not talking about uh, some form of universalism that Everyone, um, because of this appearing, is now just automatically saved and gets entrance into heaven. We know that from numerous scriptures that salvation is by grace, 
through faith and must be received, accepted, believed in. Rather, the gospel goes out indiscriminately, indiscriminately to all, to every tongue, every nation, every tribe, every kind, every class of people, at least it's supposed to, right? And that's sort of the job of missions and missionaries and all of us even here in our community come into play. But those who have been elected and predestined before the foundation of the world will then be the ones who do receive and accept and believe and trust in and have faith in the gospel. All right, so back to this question of who or what appeared at a certain or specific time to bring salvation. We find the answer in numerous places, but let's start with Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, where Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, meaning at that good, right, and appropriate time, God sent forth his Son, born of a virgin, excuse me, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Hmm wonder you're not wondering (laughs) romans 8 verse 3 for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh god did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin Hmm. okay now we're getting it philippians 2 5 to 8 have this attitude in yourselves which is also in christ jesus who although he existed in the form of god did not regard equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross ah Now we've got it, right? The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is who appeared. This was, of course, prophesied back in numerous passages, not the least of which is one that we will probably be reading again in a couple of months. Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The fact is, friends, God had to appear in human form in the context of human history so that we could be saved. This is a doctrine called substitutionary atonement which says that because of our sin, God's consequences of physical, spiritual, and eternal death, and therefore us having no hope of forgiveness or reconciliation with God, we then need a substitute, someone who can take our place and pay the price for our sin. Somebody, in other words, who could appease God's wrath against our sin. Because, you see, God made it clear in his word that the only standard for us to live by is his perfect standard. The only way to have fellowship with God in heaven is to have lived this perfect life of full obedience to all of God's commands. And you see, once that perfect standard has been broken, our sin, and and we all sin, and we all fall short of the glory of God, none righteous, not even one, then the automatic penalty is God's wrath upon us for all eternity. Now you say, you know, I've always wondered that. Why God's wrath for all eternity? Why can't we have this thing, you know, like purgatory? You know, we, we, yeah, we go and we got to pay a price and work it off, but then we're done, right? And, and we're okay. Well, here's the thing. It's not because of the nature, size, or amounts of your sin, but rather it's all about who you have sinned against. Namely, the fact that we have all sinned against an infinite, eternal, holy God. 
In his sermon entitled The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners, 18th century pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. Just just track with me and then we'll kind of give a a modern day example of, of this afterwards, okay? He says this, quote, The crime of one being despising and casting contempt on another is proportionably more or less heinous as he was under greater or less obligations to obey him. And therefore, if there be any being that we are under infinite obligation to love and honor and obey, the contrary towards him must be infinitely faulty. Our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honorableness, and authority. But God is a being infinitely lovely because he hath infinite excellence and beauty. So sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment the eternity of the punishment of ungodly men renders it infinite and therefore renders it no more than proportionable to the heinousness of what they are guilty of end quote so apologist james warner wallace gives us a modern example of this he says if your sister catches you lying about your income last year you might lose her respect But if the IRS catches you lying about your income last year, the resulting punishment will be far worse. It'll be far more painful. What's the difference here? It certainly isn't the crime. Instead, we recognize the more authoritative the source of the code, rule, or law, the greater the punishment for those who are in violation, end quote. Wallace further asserts in a different article, quote, since God is the source of justice and the law, his nature determines the punishment. Since God is eternal and conscious, all rewards and punishments must also be eternal and conscious, end quote. So getting back to this, this, this idea of Uh, substitutionary atonement this is why god in his loving kindness created a way for his wrath to be appeased by sending a perfect substitute in the form of his son as god incarnate god in human form coming to earth as a human being to be tempted in all things as we are yet without what? Sin. He then dies in our place. Oh, and he does that again because he's God, right? Because he's God incarnate. He then dies in our place, thereby atoning for our sin, which is to say he is satisfying God's wrath and justice towards our sin. And this could only take place Because the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind did what? Appeared. Appeared in the form of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to our fourth and final point. God as Savior. God as Savior. We see this in verse 5a. He saved us. This always calls for the question to be asked, what is it again we need to be saved from? Embarrassment? I stubbed my toe last night, and it really hurt. And it was in front of other people, you know, and I was like this close to crying. You know, I'm like, all I can do, does it really hurt? You know, and I thought, man, this is seriously embarrassing. Do we need to be saved from getting sunburnt? Spending our money unwisely? Uh, how many times are we going to end up in the river heading towards the waterfall, right? That, that we really need to be saved from. Or a burning building. Maybe we need to be saved from disease and death. But no, what we truly need to be saved from is nothing less than hell. 
and the lake of fire for all eternity. What we need to be saved from is this place of separation, not just separation between you and God, but between you and anyone or anything that you hold dear. You will not be in hell partying it up with the sinners because it is a place of everlasting destruction. It is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is a place of outer darkness. It is a furnace of fire. It is a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of fire and smoke and brimstone. It is a place of conscious punishment and torment. It is eternal and it is irreversible. It is a place to be avoided at all costs. Because it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. At least it should be. It is far better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The path of life leads upward for the wise that he may keep away from Sheol below. The answer, friends, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in the loving kindness of God who has provided a Savior for you having appeared some 2,000 plus years ago so that you could be saved. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we close today, we're going we're gonna to do something just a, a little different. I want you to stand, if you will, and turn to, if you're able, if you're not able, that's fine. You can certainly keep your seat, but Isaiah 53. Turn to Isaiah 53. And, uh, and we're going to do this as a responsive reading. And you'll see up on the screen as well. Actually, yeah, you know what? You can use the screen. Uh, that way we stay uh, in the same, um, with the same uh, uh, translation of text, okay? So Isaiah 53, I'll, I'll, I'll read leader and, and then we'll all read the, the people together and, and just as you're reading this, I mean, just, just meditate on this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared. And, and think of the loving kindness of our God in having his son appear and then going through what he went through so that you and I could be saved. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, what do we pray about right now, Lord? I pray our hearts are full with the sense of your love and your kindness in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to appear that he would save us that these things that we just read about would happen to him and even him knowing these truths beforehand and knowing that while he hung on that cross your face would be turned away and you would send your full wrath upon him him in our place for those that have trusted in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we, I think, simply just say thank you. And I pray, Lord, for those that have not bowed their knee to your Son, would even right now, Lord, acknowledge their sin, their need of a Savior, and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.